Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. We're in this series called Prophecy, and we're really talking about all different reasons and, and thoughts behind uh, prophecy. Why did God give us prophecy? What, what is prophecy really all about? What is God trying to accomplish with it? And today we're especially asking ourselves that last question. What's the purpose of prophecy. Why did God give us this? And if you'll recall, we've defined prophecy in two ways. We've said that prophecy is whenever God is foretelling things, when he's forecasting future events, that's prophecy. And we find that kind of prophecy throughout the Bible, where God was telling his people, here's what you can expect. In fact, even in this book of Revelation, in chapter 1, we read a segment where God says, to the people through the Apostle John. I'm writing this so that you can know what to expect. So it is, it is true to say that prophecy is forecasting. It's also true to say that prophecy is broadcasting. It's not only foretelling, it's forth-telling. It's, it's telling what is going on in God's heart to all people, not necessarily about what's going to happen in the future, but what's just true about God's heart toward you and toward me. And this morning, as we read this particular section, we're reading the first of seven letters that the Apostle John is asked to write to seven congregations that John has actually been pastoring. And especially this church, Ephesus, John was the pastor of this congregation. The Apostle John was the pastor of this congregation, uh, scholars estimate, for about 30 years. Long time pastor of this congregation. And now Jesus says, here, I want you to take some dictation. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that the words that I'm going to read to you are in red letters. Because this letter is really Jesus saying, Here's what I'm saying to these seven churches. Here's what I want to say to the congregation in Ephesus. And when he does that, he reveals what's on his heart and how we can stay on track as a congregation that wants to listen to the voice of Jesus. You're going to notice right out of the gate that Jesus identifies himself as the one who stands among the lampstands and who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Just before we read that, I want you to be reminded what the seven stars and the seven lampstands were identified as in chapter 1. The seven stars are the pastors of these seven congregations located in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And the seven lampstands are the seven congregations themselves. Remember, as a church, we're to shine. That's what we talked about last week. We're we're to hold Jesus, the light of the world, up high. And so notice what it says as we enter into Revelation chapter 2 here. It's saying, Jesus is in the house. He is the one who holds pastors in his hand. He is the one who walks among his people. And then from there on, Jesus goes to tell us what's in his heart toward this congregation in Ephesus. Let's read it. Ephesians, or rather, um, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Around this time of year, there's a memory from my childhood that always comes up. Right around the middle of December. Not a Christmas memory, per se, but a school memory. Remember my mom, when I was a freshman in high school, calling me into her room. And when I walked in there, she had an envelope and a piece of paper in her hand. And I I didn't know what it was about. And the conversation began kind of casually. But then, very quickly, my mom came around to say, so, how's school going? Because she had just gotten my first semester report card. That's what she was holding in her hand. And I had always done pretty fairly in school, not too hard to make A's and B's on my report card, but my freshman year in high school, I went completely off track. And instead of A's and B's on the report card, there were a lot of C's and D's and an F or two. I had forgotten about this thing called homework. Imagine that. And really, in grade school, I hadn't had to do much homework to get mainly A's and a B or two. But now I was in high school, I was in some advanced classes, and all of a sudden, if I wanted to maintain A's and B's, I was going to have to work at it. I still remember the look on my mom's face. Remember, if you know me a little bit, if you've heard me talk before, she's a single mom raising me on a salary from thrifty drugstore. And um, when she called me into a room, she was kind of mom and dad all rolled into one. And she knew how to do that. She knew how to be tough on me when she needed to be, although most of the time she was pretty laissez-faire and let me do what I needed to do. This time, though, she laid down the law. You will get this right. You're more gifted than this, and I want to see you get back on track. Have you ever had anybody talk to you about being off track? Maybe a parent, a brother, or a sister, a friend? Maybe a boss with your annual evaluation at work saying, man, this isn't what I expected out of you. And you know that that's not always easy. 
One of the things I remember from my coaching days in high school was that I learned something from a, a famous, famous high school coach named Morgan Wooten, one of the winningest, if not the winningest high school basketball uh, coach in all history. And he, and he said, what you got to do when you need to criticize someone and tell them they're off track is use what's called the sandwich technique. You all know what the sandwich technique is, right? You start with something good, right? And then you get to the meat of the matter, which is what needs to change. And then you go back at the end and you give them one more good thing so that it ends on a high note, right? Do you notice that's kind of what Jesus did here with the Ephesians? And I find it kind of interesting because really that's what's happening here in these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. If you read through them, what's happening is Jesus is giving these congregations their report card. He's telling them, here's what's going well, and here's what's not going so well. And in this letter to the Ephesians, he says, but you do have this going for you, right? And here's how this is relevant to us today. You know, we struggle sometimes to, to, to figure out what's the report card for a church. What's a, what's a congregation supposed to look like in today's world? And I, uh, I did a little research because, you know, there are a lot of ideas about that. Here's some things that I read as I did some research. Some believe that churches in America are on the wrong track. The average church in America has fewer than 100 people in attendance on Sunday morning. Now, that's not all bad. Small churches can be a warm, wonderful place. Uh, I happen to love small churches. I think they do a great job. But the question this person was raising is, if we're on this mission to have more people know Jesus and believe in him as their Lord and Savior, how come more churches seem, uh, don't, don't seem to be growing? Further, some people look at society in general, see the poverty, hear statistics like, since 1974, the prison population in America has risen 500%, and they ask themselves the question, if, if Christ is being preached in our country, if Christians are doing the work of, of loving people and, and sharing what, what God has done for them and then sharing God's guidelines for living, how come our society seems to be going the wrong direction? I read from a guy named George Barna, pretty famous Christian pollster, and he says that only one out of ten Christ followers have a biblical worldview, meaning their ideas match up with the Bible's ideas. Many Christians, Barna says, do not think it's necessary to keep the commandments, to share their faith. Many believe that the Bible is inaccurate and full of contradictions, and when asked how they want to be known by others, fewer than 10% mention their relationship with Christ as something that would be part of what they want others to know about them. Fewer than one out of 10. More than 300,000 churches are here in America. Some are saying, can't we do better? Now, on the other hand, there's also this. There was an article this week in USA Today. I don't know how many of you saw it. It was actually forwarded to me by a Crosswalk member. And they pointed out, this article in USA Today said that being in a congregation and having close friends in a congregation scientifically is proven to make people feel happier 
and more satisfied with their, with their lives. And what about growth? Here's some interesting numbers. In the century in which America was discovered, the 1400s, it's estimated that only one in 99 of the world's population was a Christ follower. One in 99. By the time of the Declaration of Independence, it was one in 49. By World War II, it was one in 32. And the ratio has declined steadily ever since, even in the last five years, where we would look at our country and go, really? There are now more Christians in in our world than there were five years ago? And the numbers say, yes, there are. Maybe not necessarily always right in our neighborhoods, but around the world, the ratio is now one in ten. Isn't that interesting? So how are we doing? How are we doing? Crosswalk, I mean. And if Jesus were to give us our report card, what do you think he'd say? What do you think he'd say? Would he say that crosswalk is off track or on track? And what would he say about me? The one he holds in his hand like the seven stars. What would he say about you? The one he lives amongst. What would be his evaluation? You know why I love reading these letters? Because I think by reading other people's report cards, we can learn a little bit something about ourselves and what Jesus really wants his church to be. And that's why I'm excited to go through this with you today. I think it's very real and relevant for us to see what Christ wants. And so there's those first questions. Is crosswalk on the right track? How about me? And then I want you to write this word in. Repentance, which is what Jesus calls for in this letter to the Ephesians, is all about being on the right track. And that's not new, by the way. When God spoke to his Old Testament people, the children of Israel, he kept saying, I want you on the right track. And that means that sometimes, many times, daily, you're going to have to repent. And repent means to change. Change your mind about sin. And instead of following sin and going after sin, you make a U-turn. In fact, the Hebrew word literally means to turn around and go the other directions. Look at what God said to the children of Israel, for example, through the prophet Jeremiah, and they were going through a really rough patch because there was idolatry. There was a lack of a, a, a desire for justice around them. They were unloving. They had forgotten that God had promised them a Savior. If they had stood before me and listened to me, they would have spoken my words and they would have turned my people from their evil ways and deeds. And you know that turning is still something important for you today? It's important for me too. 
And I want to read the same verse in the message because it talks about being on track. If they'd have bothered to sit down and meet with me, they'd have preached my message to my people. They'd have gotten them back on the right track, gotten them out of their evil ruts. And that's what the church has got to be about. Bottom line, if, if we want to analyze it all and boil it all down into one thing, really, the church is about changing hearts and changing minds and getting our hearts and minds on track with God's heart and mind. Wherever God's heart and mind says this is the way to go, the church is about, come on, guys, let's, let's go there. And there are two ways that we see in this letter, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus says, let's get on the right track. First, he encourages, and that's what I want you to write down. Jesus wants to encourage us, first of all, as he does the Ephesian congregation, who was on the right, they, they were on the right track in some things. In fact, in many things, at least five things we read here. Take a look at what it says there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. He's encouraging them. He's saying, these are good things. They're right things. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. This is Jesus saying, guys, I, I love seeing these things. And I think there's a really important reason why this starts the way it does in verse 1. You see that? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Because that really tells us why we do the things that we do. That we're different. That, that even if we do work hard, that even if we do persevere, that if, if we do not put up with wickedness and injustice, that if we're pursuers and champions for the truth, there's a solid reason behind it that makes us different. Because you know what? You can look around you in society and you can find other people that do those things. Hardworking people. Persevering people. People that don't let troubles and hardships bring them down. People that champion truth and justice. But you know what's missing? What's missing is Jesus in their midst. You see why it, it says, here's the important thing that has to be there. Jesus has to be in the house. And when I say in the house, I mean, yes, in our church, but also in the house of our hearts. He has to be the core and the center, the target of everything that we live for. Because he's the one who lived for us first. And, and when we do things, the idea is always, Christ first loved me. 
sacrificed himself for me, gave his life, gave his blood, stretched out his hands on the cross for me so that I could have all of these wonderful blessings of peace, forgiveness, eternal life. That little Christ child, he came into that manger, true God becoming true man for me. And that thought drives everything we do. And if, by the way, we ever take that thought out and place it to the side, and if we're ever not Christ-centered and Christ-focused, then we're just another nice society of people who like to do good things in our world, but we're not really glorifying God by what we do. And so that's why Jesus starts this way. Don't forget, I hold the pastors in my hand. Don't forget, I'm walking in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. And now, I want to I encourage you. Because these are the things that I love to see. And let's write some of those things down. You see the bullet points at the top of the second page? We're on the right track if we work hard. Because that's what... This church is commended for. They certainly weren't slackers. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians? He goes, man, I feel so foolish saying this, but I worked harder than them all, Paul says to the Corinthians. And then he goes on into this extended litany, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to look at it for yourself, of, man, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, all these Horrible things happen to me, but he says, yeah, that's what happens when you love Jesus and you want other people to know. And that's okay, because that's what we're here for, to work hard. And that's why Jesus commends the Ephesians. And then he goes on and he says, I love the fact that not only do you work hard, but you persevere through hardship. Remember that these congregations in Asia Minor were under persecution for the sake of Christ. Remember that John himself is on the island of Patmos on a prison island because he had been confessing Christ, because he had been teaching others to know Jesus. And yet, look, here he is, seeing this vision given to him by Christ and communicating it out to the congregations. There the churches are, continuing to live and practice their faith through hardship. Jesus goes on to say, we are healthy and on the right track if we refuse to tolerate wicked men. You know, we, we live in an age where tolerance is elevated as the highest of qualities to have. And we live in an age where man, we kind of shy away from ever appearing to be intolerant of anything. Sometimes it's just so hard to, to tell people, look, God says that's a sin. But it cannot be any less hard than it was for this Ephesian congregation, who when they saw wicked men come into their midst, said, we're not going there. And were firm and solid and as hardworking as they were because they loved Jesus and they loved the people around them. 
they would never allow themselves to be so worn down and so tired and so filled with love toward people that they would forget that love of God comes first, always. And love of God means I have to love his word. Love love of his word means I love truth. Do Do you know why that's so important? Because what we do in our lives is based on what we believe. And, and if we don't have the right ideas, if we're basing our, our choices and our actions on lies, on falsehoods, on things that Satan whispers into our ear that are not true because he is a liar and the father of lies then the things that we do are going to not lead us to blessing and happiness and joy and peace. They're going to lead us to destruction and ultimately to death. What we believe in, the ideas we hold, have to be true. And we have to be able to stand up for the truth, not only because we want to be clinging to true ideas that come directly from God, but also because out of love for my neighbor, I want him basing his life on true ideas too. It's one thing to say, well, out of self-interest, I want to base my life on the truth. But it's important to say, and this is what I try to get up and teach every Sunday, I want all of you to base your life on God's own truth. And not let your lives and your ideas be based on things that aren't true. And that's why Jesus says, it's so awesome that you do not tolerate wicked men. He goes on and he says that we're healthy and on the right track if we champion the truth. And we go out and we say, look, this is what God really says. If you read in there, notice there were even some false apostles. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. John the Apostle in 1 John 4, 1, you can write this um, right next to we champion the truth, right? 1 John 4, 1. This same apostle, when he's writing his first epistle, says, I want you to test every spirit. Meaning, expect that In this world, you're going to hear things that are not from this book, and they're false ideas and philosophies. Part of being healthy and on the right track is knowing to test ideas against this book, against what God has prophesied. And then finally, notice the last thing that makes us on track, that made the Ephesians on track, was if we do not grow weary. Man, I can tell you... (laughs) I came pretty close this week. This has been one week at Crosswalk Church. People sick, man, the black plague has just come through Levine. Seriously, so many people are hurting and sick. Grace Adventures, a little program that helps get God's word out at Eagle, four out of five teachers were missing. Jonathan is not up here this morning because not only is he ill, but the the entire 
favorite family is ill, they need your prayers. Their daughter was in the hospital. Now, I'm not saying this to complain. In fact, just the opposite. Because even though as all this stuff is happening and trying to make hospital visits, you know what I also saw? I saw people one after another stepping up and going, how can I help? And the love of Jesus coming through our members being passed on to other people. I saw some of our members go over and visit the favorite family, and I saw people coming into the office and saying, here's some more chicken soup for the favorite family and for others. And what an amazing thing when God's family comes together and says, we are not going to grow weary no matter what's going on, right? I've heard so many people saying, I'm praying for this person, I'm praying for that person. That's what Jesus wants to encourage in our midst. Because when that happens, we shine bright like the lampstands that we're meant to be. And I would be flat out wrong as your pastor not to look you in the eye today and say thank you for your wonderful hearts and and for all that you've done in the past week or two as we've had all these things going through. And by the way, you know this, don't you? That while Christmas is the happiest time of the year, that it is also for many people the sad, sad, saddest time of the year. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for us to keep on loving people for the next couple weeks as maybe not only people are going through illness now but memories and other things are starting to flood back and let's not grow weary of doing good as the bible tells us what an opportunity we're going to have look at what it says you know all this stuff working hard persevering through hardship refusing to to tolerate wickedness and lies not growing weary. You know what? You know what the one word description of that all is? Love. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, look at what it says. Put it in your crosswalk notes. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And man, what an amazing thing that this Jesus walks in our midst and shows us his love. One of the, one of the passages that gets repeated many times over this time of year is an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah that talks about the love of Jesus toward you and me. Look at it. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Jesus worked hard for me. Jesus overcame hardship for me and you and all of us. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Took care of wicked men by taking all our wickedness and bearing it on his shoulders as our substitute. 
He championed the truth that no matter how much in his holiness he detests sin, and he does, it angers him horribly. Yet the greater truth is this, that he loves sinners, and that he came for sinners, and that he wants sinners to be with him for eternity in heaven through the cleansing that comes when we trust in Jesus as our Savior. He champions truth, and he did not grow weary. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What an encouragement to know that we have a Savior who when we have maybe failed at some of these things, I know I have. I already confessed that there were a few points this last week where I felt a little weary. Maybe you felt the same. Maybe you felt I just don't feel like working hard this week or I can't persevere through one more hardship. Can't be done. Really, you want me to stand up against that wickedness and those lies? No, I'm just going to kind of go back into my hole. For times like that, when we have not had the strength and the courage that our God wants us to have, Jesus says, I have it for you. I'm your Savior. I was crushed for you. I was bruised for you. The punishment that came upon me brings you peace. So, Jesus wants to encourage us. But notice it goes on. He also wants to warn us. Jesus wants to warn us that we need to get back on the right track if... And let's read the second paragraph. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're, on the right, we're, we're not on the right track, or we need to get on the right track if Jesus says we've lost our first love. You know what he means by that? Any of you remember a time when God's love for you was just so apparent and it just so filled your heart that your heart was overflowing knowing how much God loved you? I remember when I first became a believer, I thought, this is amazing. You mean I have a God that loves me this much that he would, he would give his son for me? Really? And then, like many people, that amazing feeling begins to wane. And along with it, sometimes, our love of one another. And that's why Jesus says to the Ephesians, don't lose your first love. Keep going back to where you started, right? Remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember what it felt like when you realize just how much Jesus loves you? Keep remembering that. Don't let that thought go. 
Don't forget where you came from, in other words, Jesus says. That's the second bullet point. Jesus goes on and he says, we're on the wrong track and we need to get back on track if the day comes when we grow tolerant of evil and we stop repenting of our sin. When the day comes that we go, you know what? I know I'm doing this, but mm, I don't feel like fighting it anymore. I can't do the battle any longer. I'm just going to continue in this track. Jesus says, you got to get back on track. Don't stop daily going back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I know you created me to be your child. I know you redeemed me, washed me clean from my sins. I know this, and I know that I have failed you in my thoughts, words, and actions. Please forgive me. Please change my heart, my mind, my actions, my words. We're also on the wrong wrong track if we've ceased acting on what the Bible teaches. Notice what it says there. Repent and do the things you did at first. Always in the Bible, and this is said many times over, this is not just here for an intellectual understanding. This is here for us to actually put it into practice in our lives. And when we don't do the things that we did at first when we were, when we were really trying to be obedient to God, God says you're on the wrong track. And then finally, the most important one of all, notice how he ends in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we blocked our ears to what the Spirit says to us in the means of grace, in the, in the Word, then we're going to be off track. Everything has got to be based around this book. And so Jesus came and he warned the Ephesians, this is going to be a problem. Because you've forsaken your first love. You've forgotten where you came from. You've stopped repenting. You've grown tolerant of evil. You've ceased acting on what the Bible teaches. You've blocked your ears. So if you have ears, open them up and hear what the Spirit has to say to you. And that's important for us to hear today too. You know what that takes? There's one four-letter word, just like the word love was sort of the summary of the first part. There's a summary word for the second part, and it's also a four-letter word. And it's the word zeal. You know what zeal is? That's what Jesus is talking about. Don't lose your zeal. Now, zeal can be bad, right? I mean, we all know that, that, that if zeal is enthusiasm and passion and excitement for something, we do have to be careful that our zeal does not short-circuit what's written in here. Our passion can't overcome revelation. But repeatedly in the Bible, zeal is held up as a good quality, too. A very good quality. And that God wants us to be passionate and zealous and enthusiastic for him, for his word. And in fact, he says, 
You know why all this Christmas stuff happens? Because I have zeal for you. One of my favorite Christmas passages from the book of Isaiah. You remember how it ends? Take a look in your crosswalk notes. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and and righteousness from that time on forever and ever. The zeal, will you underline that? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Why is Jesus born for us? Because God has zeal for us. Passion, enthusiasm, excitement to win our salvation. And in turn, God says, I want you to have that same zeal and passion, and enthusiasm right back toward me, toward one another. Paul wrote to the Romans, and he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And now I want you to underline the next phrase. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So there's the report card. How are we doing? If you were to look at Crosswalk, would you see love? I hope so. If you were to look at crosswalk, would you see zeal? I pray so. Because if we don't see love, and if we don't see zeal, then maybe the next question to ask is, is Jesus really walking in our midst? Is he and his love and his zeal first for us really constantly on our minds? as the defining factor for everything that we are, everything that we think, everything that we do. What about you personally? Not just this church. Because sometimes when we think about church, we can think, yeah, man, (laughs) I wish that guy next to me would get some love and zeal going, man. What about you? Are you a man, a woman, filled to overflowing with the love of Christ? So that when people see you, they just see you oozing love. Are you a person of passion, enthusiasm? Does the message of Christmas inspire zeal in you that this little Christ child was born for an entire world of sinners? It must produce that in you because that's what the gospel does. 
And I pray that we together, we put all these people together, filled with love and zeal, that God's Holy Spirit, because he's the one that puts that in us, will continue to build us up in love and zeal. And if Jesus were to come here to crosswalk today, and he would say, John, write a letter to the church in Ephesus, oh no, not Ephesus, to the church in South Phoenix and Levine. Write that that report card would show that because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, we are on God's track. Take a look at some next steps that you can take. I want you to take Phil's challenge and think about helping someone else you love get back on track. Pick up those cards as you leave today. Make sure you dig that little invite card out of your program and don't lose it. And invite three friends to Crosswalk's Christmas Rock and Eve worship, 4, 6, and 8 p.m. on December 24th. I want to encourage you to think about our Love One Another offering. We haven't said much about that today, but you've had three weeks to hear about that. There are packets on the table in the back if you're interested in learning more. And think about, pray about giving a gift to our Love One Another Christmas offering. And then finally, meditate on and memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 6 to 8. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your love for us truly never fails. And while we are sinners, Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you do love sinners. Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus, that little Christ child born into a manger. Thank you for sending your son, true God, to become true man so that he could live a perfect life in our place, die a death that is a perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. Lord God, help us to stay focused on this message of Christmas. And Lord, send your spirit through your word and through your sacraments into this congregation. Fill every heart and mind with love and zeal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.